James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? For you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's words today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves now to your word. As it's been read, Lord, we pray now that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would instruct us and guide us in your scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to become the people that you intend for us to be as it's spelled out for us in the pages of scripture. Lord, we're mindful here of a church in conflict with quarrels and disputes. And Lord, we desperately don't want to be a church like that. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us this morning and that you would lead us into the truth and into righteousness. So Lord, teach us, instruct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I titled the sermon this week, A Church in Conflict, because that's what we just read about here in James chapter 4, a church that was experiencing conflict. And I wonder, does that seem abnormal to you? This idea of a church experiencing conflict and division? I mean, why would a church have conflict? Aren't churches filled with a bunch of good Christians? Well, churches have conflict because people have conflict. And if you didn't know, now you know. It's been said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. See, all of us are sinners. All of us bring issues into the church. And even with the best of intentions, 
we can, if we're not careful, contribute to a church that is contentious and a church that is marked by conflict rather than peace and unity and joy and love and fellowship in the Spirit. Churches, like all places, are filled with imperfect people who are influenced by less than godly desires. So what can we expect? Now, some churches have had conflict for so long that they don't even recognize it anymore. They just feel like it's normal. They can't even see it. They're oblivious to it. I heard a story from two of our members from many years ago where they visited a church, and this church had formal membership, much like we do. And they thought, well, maybe we should go to a members meeting to see what this church is like and what it's all about. So they went. And after a very contentious meeting, he was walking out next to the church secretary and she said to him, that was one of the best meetings we've ever had. I've never seen so much love before. Needless to say, they did not decide to become members of that church. Here in this chapter, as we shift into chapter four in the book of James, James helps us to take a good hard look at conflict in the church. And as he does, he helps us to see three things. First, he helps us to see the source of conflict. Where does this come from? He also helps us to see the seriousness of conflict. And finally, like a good pastor teacher, he provides for us the solution to conflict. Well, let's take these in order. Let's begin with the source of conflict. We saw it there in verses one through three. And he writes there, right off the bat in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So, so what is the source? What is causing this to happen? The answer, according to James, is that your passions are at war within you. Our passions are battling, they're doing con- or having conflict internally within us. The word passions here in the Greek is Hedone, which is where we get the English word hedonism. And the idea here is selfish desires. It's our own selfish desires to gratify self that are warring within us that lead to conflict with other people. Now, even as Christians, even as believers, this is still true of us, that we have competing passions or competing desires internally that are waging war. We have an internal battle that is raging day in and day out between good godly desires on one hand and selfish, sensual desires on the other hand. Now, we talked about this back in chapter one. In chapter one, we learned that the source of all of temptation is our own desires. And now here in chapter four, James is able to trace back the source of all human conflict, and it's the exact same thing. It's our own desires. We read in the pastoral prayer this morning, Galatians 5.17, where Paul writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So even as believers, we have this battle raging, And there are things that we want to be doing because we're Christians and because the Spirit of God is alive in us. We know how we ought to live. We know the things that we ought to love. We know the things we shouldn't be doing, and yet conflict ensues. 
We see here in the text how conflict originates in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen, all fights and all quarrels are the result of unfulfilled desires. We want something and we cannot get it. Think of all the fights that young children have with one another. If you have children, then just think back to when they were young. How do the fights end up happening? Well, a child wants something, another kid stands in the way of them getting what they want, and then a fight erupts. A quarrel ensues. She has my toy. He has my ball. You know what? Grown-ups still do this as well. She has my promotion. He has my girlfriend. And fights, quarrels ensue. Now remember that this whole section that we're in right now, we've titled Trouble in the Community. And it began back in chapter 3, verse 1. And there we learn that one of the great sources of conflict in the congregations that James is writing to is that there were people in the churches who were trying to get leadership and teaching positions in the church. They were sort of jockeying for these key positions in the church. That was the thing that they wanted. I want to be set forward in the church as a leader and a teacher. And because it wasn't happening, they were left with envy. They were left with selfish, unfulfilled desires. And this in turn became the conflict in the church. There were factions and parties that were beginning to form. People, as we learned in chapter 3, were using destructive speech to tear other people down. It was a total mess in the local church. Now, the word covet here in verse 2 is the same word that's translated jealousy in chapter 3, verse 16, which we talked about last week. In other words, James is still talking about the same people. They desire these positions in the church. They covet what others have. And it leads to murder and fights and quarrels. Now let's pause for a moment on that word murder. That's a really strong word, obviously, as we read it there. Is James talking about literal murder? Are people in the church killing each other? Probably not. Um, If that were the case, these people would be going to civil courts, going to jail, not falling under church discipline. Jesus taught that to hate somebody is to murder that person from your heart. James has already taught us that words can kill. Remember back in verse 8 of chapter 3, James says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James likely means here what he meant there, that these people were destroying one another in the church with their speech, with their words. They were tearing other people down. And this was the source of great conflict. Verse 2 ends with what seems to be an abrupt shift to the topic of prayer. Notice he says, you do not have because you do not ask. But his point is to say this. He's saying to these people who are creating conflict in the church, he's saying, you are not going about things in the right way. They are creating conflict and hurt in the church rather than trusting in the Lord and seeking his will 
in their lives. Imagine if these people, rather than slandering other people, rather than tearing people down with their words and creating parties and factions in the church to achieve their own agenda, imagine if they prayed a prayer to God like this. Lord, I really want to be used by you in this church. I want to bring you glory. Make me a person who is useful to you. Oh, how God would be pleased to answer prayers like that. But that's not happening because that's not what they're asking God to do. They don't pray that way. How do we know? Well, because he tells us how they do pray when they choose to pray in verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When these people whose hearts were in the wrong place, who were being ruled by envy and selfish ambition, when they do pray to God, they were asking wrongly. The New American Standard Bible puts it with wrong motives. In other words, they were asking for things that will further their own hedonism rather than furthering God's glory in the church. And those are prayers that are typically met with a big, fat, gracious no. So this family is the source of conflict. Conflict is rooted in our own selfish, unchecked desires. Well, this brings us to verses four and five, where we see James helping us to understand, understand the seriousness of conflict. Now, James, as we've talked about, can be probably rightly categorized as a wisdom book in the New Testament. But in verse four, James gets all Old Testament prophet on us for a moment. He just unleashes in verse four and he says, you adulterous people. That's a startling statement. That would kind of get your attention if you weren't paying attention before. On Halloween, I took my kids trick-or-treating through the neighborhood and we were walking through the neighborhood and trick-or-treating for, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. And I was just kind of sleepily going through the motions and walking from door to door and trying to encourage the boys like, hey, it's not scary, everything's okay. Just walk up and just knock and say trick or treat and the people are really nice, they're gonna give you candy. So I'm just kind of going through the motions, not really paying much attention to it. And there's this one door that looks kind of creepy and the boys didn't wanna walk up to it. So I'm like, come on boys, just come with dad, I'll walk you up there. And I turn and I'm facing them and the door's right here and I'm like, go ahead, it's fine, just knock on the door and I'm not paying attention. And all of a sudden there's this like skeleton behind me and it just starts talking like super loud in this creepy voice. And it like startled me and I kind of jumped because I was not paying attention to it. And of course I had to play it off with my sons and act like I didn't get scared. And I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm cool. It's not scary. Don't worry about it. Just knock on the door and ask. But it startled me. It got my attention. This is how this statement in verse four would have impacted the first readers or listeners of this epistle. It would have shocked them. You have to remember that at this time in church history, James's letter would have been written by James and sent to these congregations. And because most people were illiterate and because no people had their own written copy of this, the church would have gathered like we are today. And the pastor would have sat and read the entire letter to the church from start to finish. When he got to this verse in chapter four, he would have already been reading for about 15 to 20 minutes. You can imagine that members in the congregation might be kind of zoning in and out at this point, not that any of us in our church could relate to this, right? Like we never zone, we're so focused. You guys know I can see you, right? 
You know I, I have eyes. I can totally see all of you. That's okay. Sometimes while I'm preaching, I zone in and out a little bit. Can you guys tell? Good. God bless you, Brooklyn. Thank you. Probably not. I don't zone that much, but we all do it. But they would have been zoning in and out, some of them. But I'm telling you, when he hit this verse, verse 4, and said, you adulterous people, it would have startled them. It would have shocked them. It would have gotten their attention. Now, these congregations that James was writing to were a mixed bag of believers and non-believers, just like all churches are, really. There's solid, true, converted believers, and then there's other people who aren't yet walking with the Lord. And James wanted these non-believers that were living in sin to understand the seriousness of their sinful predicament. That by aligning themselves with sin and following their own selfish desires, they were actually in a perilous situation. But he also knows that believers can get comfortable in their sin. That even those of us who are born again have a way of downplaying our own sin and tolerating sin in our own lives. Of course, we don't want to tolerate other people's sin, but we're good at tolerating sin in our own lives. And we can start sleeping on the fact that we're living in sin, that we're indulging the flesh, that we're not living holy lives. And so James is wanting to alert believers to the gravity of what it means if you are consistently living in sin. So he says, you adulterous people. That escalates quickly. This language was familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Here's the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3, verse 1. He says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? It's a heavy passage. What's going on in this church in James chapter 4 is a big deal. James calls it adultery. What he's saying is you people who are living this way are cheating on God. To pray the way that these people were praying aligns a person with the world and its carnal desires and values and positions them against God. Instead of saying to the Lord, your will be done, what they're effectively saying is my desires be fulfilled at all costs. We can see then why James says that this makes a person an enemy of God. Family, the church is called the bride of Christ. So he's our husband. And we read here in this passage that he is a jealous spouse as he should be. He's not content to share his bride. Marriage is an all or nothing commitment. And Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And so James, in the spirit of the prophets, brings to light the seriousness of choosing to live in sin. If this becomes the direction that we live in our lives, we are pitting ourselves against God himself. Well, James isn't going to leave us there. Third and finally, he's going to help us to see in verses 6 through 12, the solution to conflict. What's the solution? It begins with this idea, but he gives more grace. Amen. 
What a statement. But he gives more grace. James says, you adulterers, you enemies of God, what would we expect next? We would expect, therefore God divorces you. Therefore God is going to destroy you. But instead of that, we see this, but he gives more grace. It's amazing. Now, it's an amazing thing when a person can forgive their spouse for the sin of adultery. When somebody does that, it causes people to step back and go, wow, that, that's amazing. But for a person to forgive somebody who doesn't just commit adultery once, <coughs> excuse me, but commits it over and over and over again, that's almost unthinkable. <clears throat> the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament was called by God to do that exact thing. The prophet Hosea was called to marry a woman named Gomer. The only thing worse than her name, the only thing worse than her name was her profession. Gomer was a prostitute. <clears throat> and Hosea married her because God told him to. And she continuously cheated on Hosea. And Hosea forgave her and loved her and pursued her. And God's message through Hosea to his people was this. That's what you're doing to me. I married you. And yet you are cheating on me over and over and over again. But he gives more grace. God looks at his people in the filth of their adultery. And he says, return to me. I still love you. Come back to me. I'll forgive you. We can make this work. I can make this work. That's God's offer. But we have to respond. We have to come back to experience his grace. We see in verse 6, God opposes the proud. So not everybody's going to get grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to whom? To the humble. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. As long as we pridefully avoid God, fulfilling our own selfish desires, we are in opposition to God. But when we have a moment of clarity, when we come to our senses and we return to him humbly, we receive his grace. That's the open-ended promise of God to his people. What does it mean to humble yourself before God? The answer is repent. It's repentance. What could possibly be more humble than to come before God and to say, God, you are God and I am not. You are in charge and I am not. You are right and I am wrong. And I am going to stop living for myself and doing my own thing. And I am going to start living for you. That takes a lot of humility. It's pride that keeps us in the place of saying, I can manage this. I can work this out. I can fix this myself. I can achieve what I want to achieve without any regard for God and what he says. That's pride. Humility is repentance. It's saying, I'm done thinking that way. You're the one on the throne. I am not. Therefore, I am going to place you in my heart where you, in fact, actually 
are seated on a throne. We see this dynamic at work in the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. Love this story. So powerful. A father has two sons. The father represents God, according to Jesus' teaching. And his younger son gets sick and tired of living in his dad's house because his dad's got everything. And because he feels like even though his dad's got everything, he feels like his dad's withholding some things from him. So he wants to go out and sow his wild oats a little bit in a faraway country. He wants to go out with his portion of the inheritance and live a life of luxury and spend tons of money. So he heads off to Vegas and he takes the money and he goes and he does his thing. And he lives that way. And he has friends for a while, but as soon as the money runs out, the friends run out with it and he's left all alone. And then a famine hits the land that he's living in. And this kid who once lived in the lap of luxury with every need taken care of, physically, relationally, emotionally, now he has nothing. And he hires himself out to a local farmer. And he's sitting there in the mud feeding pigs. And he's looking at the little pieces of food that he's giving to the pigs and his stomach is grumbling. And inside he says, man, I'd love to eat what I'm feeding to these pigs. That's how desperate he had become. And the scripture says that he came to his senses. And he remembered what it was like in his dad's house. And he decided that day, I'm going to make a decision. This is what repentance looks like. I'm going to get up out of the pigsty and I'm going to head back home to my father's house because even if he treats me as a servant, I'll have it so much better off than I've got it here. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Amen? That was his perspective. And so he runs home. And guess what he finds when he gets there? When he comes toward his dad's house in a spirit of humble repentance, he doesn't find a dad who says, go work for me in the field. Don't talk to me. We're not friends anymore. His dad, according to Jesus' story, kind of is sitting on the front porch, looking with longing eyes, maybe tear-filled eyes, wondering, is this the day my son comes home? Is this the day my son comes to his senses? And when he sees his son a long way off, he gets up and he runs to him and he embraces him and he puts the signet ring back on his finger and he clothes him in the garments of the family, these nice clothing or this nice clothing. And he says, let's slaughter the fatted calf and let's have a party because my son who was lost has been found, who is dead is alive. This is what it looks like to humbly repent. And this is the type of person who receives grace from God. James is going to unpack humble repentance for us in verses 7 through 11. These will come quickly. There's six aspects to it here in these verses. The first aspect is submit in verse 7. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Repentance begins with submission to God. It's coming underneath God. It's no longer saying, God, you're over there and I'm over here doing my own thing. It's saying, I am coming underneath you. You are in control. I am not. You're the boss. You get to lead me. You get to guide me. Repentance is also doing the opposite of that to the devil. We submit to God and we resist. That's the second thing. Resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? It sounds super mystical. How do we do that? Do we hold out a crucifix? Do we sprinkle holy water all over the inside of our homes? Do we learn some spiritual jujitsu? No. 
Really, these are the two sides of the same coin. The way to resist the devil is to submit ourselves to God. Because if we are underneath the rule and reign of God, then we are free of the rule and reign of the enemy. Resisting the devil, after all, is just resisting his ways. The third thing that we see here about repentance is that we need to draw near. We need to draw near. Repentance doesn't just mean turning away from your sin. It means turning toward God. It's not just stop sinning. It starts seeking the Lord, coming after him, drawing near to him. And what a beautiful promise James gives to us. As you make that decision to draw near to him, he will draw near to us. As the prodigal son ran home to his dad, he found a dad who ran out to meet him. The prodigal son didn't just come to his senses, he came home. Next we see it involves cleansing. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, James writes. Notice here that repentance means to actually change our ways. Cleanse your hands refers to our outward life, our actions, our behaviors. So if it's our words or our actions that are sinful, receiving God's grace means receiving grace to change. Next we see the word purify. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Whereas cleansing refers to our outer life, purify refers to our inward life. That we need to purify our hearts. That we need to change our minds. He's talking to the double-minded. This reminds us that the grace of God affects more than just our outward behavior. The grace of God changes us from the inside out. God changes our hearts. God changes our minds. We begin to love what he loves. We begin to hate the things that he hates. In fact, we see this in verse 9, where we also learn that humble repentance involves grieving. We're to have a genuine sorrow over our sin. Did you know that true repentance means changing your attitude towards sin? No longer do we see sin as just a little mistake or a momentary lapse in judgment or a bad decision. We start to see sin for what it really is. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is destructive to other people. Sin is to reject perfect love from a perfect father. Sin is what is tearing apart churches and families and communities. In fact, sin is what is tearing apart the entire cosmos. Everything that is destroyed in the world we live in is the result of sin. Sin is a big deal. And you will never truly repent until you come to grips with this truth, with the gravity of what sin actually is. Until a person feels sorrow over their sin and finds in their heart that they're actually ashamed of these things that are sinful We're not in a place to actually give it it up. Now, he's not saying here that you have to actually physically weep in order to repent. Um, My brother and I are not criers at all. Um, He jokes that we had our tear ducts removed when we were born. But neither of us cry. It's just the way that we are. Um, And we've always been that way since we were young. Um, Neither of us cry anymore. But James is not saying that people like me can't repent. And... To be honest, if something really, really tragic happened, I'm sure I would cry. It's just not my normal 
emotion to cry. But he's not saying that you have to weep, although I would say that that is the experience of many Christians when they finally do come to grips with how serious their sin is and what an offense it is to God and how destructive it is in their own lives. Oftentimes it does bring tears. But the point that James is making is that repentance involves a genuine sorrow over sin. Sin is no longer something that you laugh about. It's no no longer something that you joke about, the sin in your life. It's something that you regret. It's something that you feel ashamed over. It's something that grieves you at your core. So this here in these verses is what it looks like to humbly repent before your God. And this is the person who receives God's grace. Therefore, James writes in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Family, notice with me now how everything comes full circle. What was the thing that these people who were living in sin were after? Wasn't it that they wanted to be exalted in the community? Wasn't it that they were jockeying for positions of authority and leadership in the churches? That's the thing that they wanted. And what God is reminding them through James here is that the very thing that you actually wanted is is the very thing that God is pleased to give those who are in a spiritual condition to receive it. The condition of humble repentance. Their problem was that they were going about it in the wrong way. The way up in God's kingdom is always down. The world will tell us if you want to get ahead, if you want to be on the top, then what you need to do is step on top of other people. Use them as a human ladder to get there. Leave a, 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 just wreckage and carnage with other people to get where you want in the world. And in God's kingdom, it just doesn't work that way because God is not okay with us trying to achieve our ends by destroying other people in the process. So in God's kingdom, the way that it works is that those who learn to get really, really low, those who humble themselves and say, it's not about my will, it's not about my desires, it's not about my ambition. It's about what God wants, and I'm his servant, and therefore I'm a servant of other people. Those are the people that God eventually says, that's the kind of person that I can trust. That's the kind of person that should have a position of influence and impact in the church and in my kingdom. We can never be reminded of this too often. Verses 11 and 12 are concluding remarks that round out this section this morning. What's interesting is that the solution to conflict in the church, as we've seen, is primarily a vertical solution. It's about humble repentance before God. But it doesn't end there. It also involves taking practical steps to love one another. There's no such thing as being right with God while choosing to live at odds with other people. Now, of course, there are times that despite our best efforts at living at peace with other people, it can't happen. This is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But listen, as long as the reason that we're living at odds, is with, at odds with other people is because of our own unrepentant sin, we have a responsibility before God to deal with that, 
to confess that sin, to turn from it, and to fix the problem. That's why James says in verse 11, do not speak evil against another, brothers. He's saying the destructive speech has got to end. To fail to stop sinning against one another is to fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is what James is getting at with these last two verses. Speaking evil of another person is to speak evil of God's law. Because as we learned in chapter two, God's law, what's called there the royal law, is summarized in this. Love one another even as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We would never speak evil of ourselves. We would never want other people to speak evil about us. We would never intentionally destroy our, ourselves, our reputation, nothing like that. And so when we are doing that to other people, we are not loving those people. We are not fulfilling God's law. And so we're called to repent. He says to these churches and to the members in it, do not speak evil against another. Repentance is first and foremost vertical. It's our heart before God. It's a turning away from sin in the presence of God, but it has horizontal implications. It involves going and making things right with the people that you sinned against. This is the solution to conflict in our lives. And I can't help but wonder this morning what conflicts in your life could be resolved tomorrow if you would but repent. If this morning, by God's grace, you would come to a place in your life where you go, you know what, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to repent before the Lord and I'm going to go to that person and I'm going to repent to my sister or my brother who I have sinned against. Would your marriage get better? Would your relationship with your family improve? Or your work environment? Would that neighbor no longer be angry and malicious toward you? Would our church become a healthier body? Family, as we've seen this morning, whenever there's conflict, there is someone living in sin. There is someone living for self rather than living for God and neighbor. And what James reminds us is that living that way pits us against God, effectively positioning you with God's enemies, not God's friends. And to continue down that path is terrifying. Because verse 12 reminds us that he is the one who is able to save and destroy. This morning, we need to come to our senses and we need to humbly repent and experience him as savior, not destroyer in our lives. God is offering more grace. God is offering forgiveness and love to all who would receive it. But as we've seen, the way to receive that is only through humble repentance. Have you done that? If not, today is the day of salvation for you. If so, are you continuing to do that? Because repentance is the ongoing posture of heart of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just that we repent at one moment in our life and turn to the Lord and then ignore him and start living for ourselves the rest of our lives. We live in a constant state of of repentance, evaluating our own hearts and saying we are going to choose to live for God and not for sin. We're going to turn from sin day after day after day and turn to the Lord. 
Whenever a believer chooses to live in sin rather than living in, in rather than living for the Lord, they're effectively aligning themselves against him. And here's the scary thing. In doing so, they may in fact prove that whatever conversion or faith that they think that they have is actually just empty and hollow. So this morning, we need to let James' words pierce our souls once again. We need to evaluate our own hearts and we need to let his words startle us again into a position of humble repentance because it's here and here alone that we experience God's grace and an abundance of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, most of us are people who do not enjoy living in conflict. Most of us are people who would desire to live with peace. Peace internally, peace in community with others, peace in our church, peace in our families. But Lord, we're thankful this morning for this reminder of what it is that actually disrupts peace in all of our relationships, what it is that actually causes conflict. And Lord, as we've seen in your word, the source of all of it is our own selfish desires that go unchecked. So Lord, this morning, we don't want to downplay the seriousness of that. We want to agree with your word that if we are choosing to live that way, then we're effectively aligning ourselves with you. And so Lord, we acknowledge that this morning. And God, we desire to experience your grace. And we know that that only comes to us through humble repentance. As your grace makes us aware through your word of the gravity of our sin, of the peril of our situation if we continue on this path, Lord, you help us to come to our senses and to humble ourselves before you and to repent and to seek you with all of our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning that that would be the posture of our hearts, that we would be a people who are submitting ourselves once again to you, resisting the devil and all that he wants us to do with our lives in opposition to you, that we would be a people who are drawing near to you day in and day out, that we would be a people who are cleansing ourselves and purifying our hearts by your grace from all the evil that is there. And that, Lord, you would constantly give us a heart that is never laughing or making light of sin, but that we would have hearts that are grieving over sin, that are sorrowful over sin, and are, that are continuously wanting to turn from those sins to you. So Lord, work these things in our hearts today. And Lord, I pray that as we evaluate our own hearts, we would not only turn to you in repentance, but Lord, if we're living in sin toward other people, if we've done things to other people that have created conflict, then by your grace, I pray that this week we would go and we would seek these people out and we would make these wrongs right. So Lord, empower us to do this. And Lord, we thank you that as we turn to you in this way, we can experience grace and forgiveness because of what Christ has done. And so we worship him this morning. We honor him in song and shortly by receiving communion together.
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing a song of worship, and then we're going to receive communion together as a church family. So let's worship now.